This episode is brought to you in part by Richmond Graduate University. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly. Richmond Graduate University can equip you to become a licensed professional counselor, integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmond.edu. From Christianity Today, you're listening to The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. I'm Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media, and with me here is Russell Moore, CT's editor-in-chief. This week, we're talking about the ongoing classified document scandals, Pride Night and the NHL, and Chat GPT. Stay with us. So since last August, classified documents have been in the news pretty much every day. The story really began in May of 21. The National Archives reached out to Donald Trump and former members of his administration saying there were boxes missing. That's been a long story. There's been obfuscation. There's potential of criminal charges over this whole thing. Then on January 9th of this year, CBS reported that back in November, classified documents were found at Biden's offices at the Penn Biden Center, which I believe is a think tank, correct? Mm -hmm. So then January 12th, the White House announced that they'd found more in his Wilmington residence. That was searched by the FBI on January 20th. And then last week, after uh, he had, you know, spoken some pretty harsh words about the Biden situation, Mike Pence then announced that classified documents have been found at his house. Mm-hmm. Once again, here we are in a situation where you have ethics issues come up, people accuse one another of corruption, and then they begin to spread. And the sum result is, once again, we're looking around and going, oh, our, our institutions have really serious problems again. Yeah, but I think in a different way, because I, I don't think what's happening right now is, oh, our, our institutions are corrupt. I mean, there, there are plenty of opportunities to, to do sure, that. Sure, sure. I think now what's happening is that people are saying our institutions are stupid. I mean, because <laughs> in this, everybody to some degree is kind of acting on brand. So mm-hmm. with Trump, you have potentially obstruction of justice, refusal to turn them over, the attorneys saying, well, I, I guess we were lied to. You have with Mike Pence, somebody who's it seems, responsibly turning these things over of his own volition. And with Biden, you end up with this crazy (laughs) gaffe of saying, well, there's no there there because they were next to my Corvette and it's locked in the garage, which you just, I I know that there are people in the White House who were yelling, no, with it, (laughs) stop talking. So you, you have that going on. And I think what's happened is because of this, there is no way, no matter how bad it is. And I do think these situations are very different in terms of intent, in terms of response. But there's no way that Donald Trump is going to be indicted on these charges for the Mar-a-Lago documents mm-hmm. because nobody's going to do that when they know that this is sort of mutual assured destruction with the way that right. American life is polarized right now. So for, for me, yeah. I look at this and say this is telling us something about the way that I think we can operate even in our personal lives and even within the church, where we kind of judge things on the basis of whether the person is on my side 
as opposed mm. to whether or not this is really a serious problem. Because you have some people in public life who are saying this is a problem for Biden, it's a problem for Trump, it's a problem for Pence, but very few. Most of the mm -hmm. time you have some people who are saying, ah, everything's too overclassified with Trump, who then are turning around saying, oh, no, Hunter Biden has all of our nuclear documents right. and vice versa. So that then becomes really difficult. It's a bigger problem than that. I was doing an ordination council for a young minister this past uh, Saturday. And one of the things that I said, which came up in my ordination council many years ago, was, okay, who will you marry in terms of your performing marriage ceremonies? Will you marry two unbelievers? Will you marry a believer to an unbeliever? Will you marry somebody who's been divorced? If so, under what circumstances? Those sorts of questions. And the reason is to say you have to get those kinds of things down in terms of what you think the Bible teaches before you're sitting down with Ronnie and Mary. And, mm -hmm. and then it becomes not what's right. It's do I care about these people? And that can change that and shift that. And I think that's a great deal of what we're seeing at the most absurd level with this kind of thing. But it really is a problem that yeah. we can't just say, oh, well, that's political world. It doesn't affect me. Yeah, I think the thing that is dangerous about this is if my expectation, first of all, is that this is just going to continue. I mean, I imagine yeah. the Obamas and the Bushes and the Clintons right now are all bracing themselves going, do we search the house or do we not search the house? You know, don't open the closets. But I just have a sense that it's going to be ongoing. I, th I think the Clintons the probably have everything evacuated. Have they? <laughs> they, they, they probably, <laughs> probably, probably did a long time ago. What I wonder, though, is if there's nothing that comes from this, right? At the end of the day, if, if the Justice Administration looks at this and says, well, this was a real problem, we need to rethink about how, what we're classifying and what we're not, then you know, Congress needs to step in, et cetera. And then the president and the, the former vice president and the former president, nothing happens, right? There's no repercussions. You know, what happens the next time someone else is caught with classified documents? And they're arrested, they're tried. Are we creating a double standard where somebody else is above the law? I mean, people go to jail for this all the time. There's the famous yeah. story of, was it Sandy Berger Sandy in the Clinton administration yeah. who was stuffing this stuff in his socks on those way yeah. out the door and went to jail? Yeah. Would he get off in 2025 if Trump and Biden and Pence avoid any repercussions for it now? Is a, Meaning by that, is a jury going to convict them when his defense is three presidents or three, you know, president, vice presidents have done this? Is this really a big crime? That's the problem. It's not a problem for prosecutors because they're able to tell the difference between intent and obstruction, all those things. You can't prosecute people and you can't create laws if you have no public support for those things. So if the public uh, not usually able to distinguish between what somebody smuggling something out of a skiff and what somebody whose staff packed up some empty file folders that were marked classified, they can't distinguish. And it's, oh, this is what everybody does. So it comes back to this kind of Baptist and bootleggers phenomenon is what they, uh, is what they <laughs> call it, where prohibition- Okay, I don't know that phrase. I don't know that phrase. Okay. They use it whenever you have, for instance, people who want to ban casino gambling and are working to ban casino gambling and online gambling companies. So the online gambling companies really gotcha. want those casinos shut down. And so do the Puritans who want to shut them down. So they're actually in an alliance. And that 
can easily happen with so many things where it's just, well, everybody does this and then it just becomes, there's no way to actually prosecute it. It becomes Mm -hmm. prohibition in that way. What this makes me think about is the way that this actually is happening all the time in the church and in all of our Christian lives in this way. And that is, it is often really hard to tell with any sort of aspect of obedience. How much of this is we're in a context that is just really culturally rotten or our church is just especially sinful? And how much of this is we have too high of expectations? So the question here is, is the government overclassifying things? Do we have a problem with overclassification where nobody's really going to be able to meet this standard? Or do we just keep electing especially corrupt people when it comes to national security secrets? I think there's a lot of times in church life where I find myself saying to people, look, you're actually beating yourself up. You're actually doing really well spiritually Mm. compared to everybody else around. And then I step back and say, yeah, but is that because everybody else in the immediate context is so bad off? Either direction ultimately leads to the same place. Because whether we're talking about in church spiritual formation, whether we're talking about parenting, discipleship, anything else, you can set a bar that is so high that eventually people just give up and say, okay, well, nobody, nobody observes this. Look at the polling data on American Roman Catholic observance of the church's teaching on birth control. One survey I saw was 98% of the church ignores that. Well, Mm -hmm. is that because the American Catholic Church is really, really Protestant, or is it because the church is putting down a standard that nobody can meet? Those are real issues to wrestle through. My response to that is, why not both, (laughs) right? Well, sometimes it is both, yeah. Because I think the equivocation thing is interesting. There's very clearly a difference between, and I would say there's differences between all three from what we know so far, between Trump, Biden, and Pence and how these things have been handled. It makes me think, I remember the day after it was announced that Osama bin Laden had been killed, Mm -hmm. there was this really weird thing that happened on Twitter, and I saw multiple people doing it or quote tweeting it or whatever, saying something to the effect of like, like doing a Jesus juke with the story and saying, you know, mm-hmm. I'm just grateful that when the SEAL Team 6 of God's judgment came to the world, <laughs> Jesus was there to, you know, take the bullet for me. Oh, my. Essentially saying, like, we're no different than Osama bin Laden. And so I think that's part of the danger of these moments is that if we're not careful in the way that we think, if, if the media is not careful in the way it tells these stories— it creates that malaise, like we, it cultivates the malaise and, you know, and just exacerbates yeah. it because same thing with the church. If, you know, there was a story about a, a pastor that I heard the other day who had to go on a leave of absence because he had been sort of functionally checked out and not been leading well. And there were people in the church that were like, oh, he's going on a leave of absence for a couple months to deal with, you know, burnout or whatever. Like, is this Mark Driscoll? Is this this? Is this that? Yeah. And it was very clearly different. But if we don't enable ourselves, empower ourselves to think about it, we we do that to our detriment, to, to the culture's detriment. And that's because there are two things that are true at the same time. One of them being that all sin is sin. 
all sin is lawlessness, and anyone who sins is a lawbreaker. You know, Jesus is saying that really consistently. Don't think that you are different from the tax collectors and prostitutes when you have all of these internal issues going on. That's true, and that has to be said so that you don't have people dividing themselves into, okay, here are the law keepers and the law breakers. That's not a gospel understanding of how this works. At the same time, you have to emphasize that there are ways of sinning that are more harmful to you and to other people than others, which the Bible also makes that distinction. So you've got both of those things that you have to hold in tension with one another. And when that falls apart in the legal arena, you start to say, nobody's really going to keep the law, which is why there's a real principle in lawmaking that if you make the law impossible for people to keep, you get a ticket for every time you come to a rolling stop at a stop sign. Eventually, nobody's going to even observe the really important stuff. They can't tell the difference between the two. And in our own lives, we can have too low of an expectation or we say, ah, you know, everybody embezzles a little money. Everybody does a little bit of slander in the church uh, parking lot. Or we can be in a situation where we say, there's no way that I'm ever going to be holy because I can't be like these other people. That must mean that I'm just sort of predestined to party. And that Mm -hmm. becomes dangerous too. Here's one of my favorite stories that I found looking at this. Back in 2013, there was a journalist named George Levine, and he was reporting on some issues at the CIA. And he filed a Freedom of Information request for classified documents. It was granted in this case, that were they were emails. I'm going to read two of them to you. The first one says, I purchased the usual Friday kielbasa this morning and was disappointed <laughs> to find that food services have changed the brand or this morning's batch was bad. It doesn't taste, look, or have the same texture as the kielbasa I've been getting from this cafeteria for the past several years. Please change it back. This is a Friday treat that I look forward to every week. <laughs> And then the second one, which is much shorter and, and just as good, why doesn't the Burger King facility here offer the dollar menu like outside facilities? Also, why can't there be nicer food handlers? Attitude every day. So those are classified, you know? Somebody prints that off and takes it home. Yeah, you, you know there are some QAnon types who are saying, what's the hidden code coming from the deep state with <laughs> kielbasa? Yeah. Here's what it means. Yeah, what's, what is Burger King? Who's the Burger King for real? <laughs> All right, we will be right back. Nicole here. If you're looking for a podcast that features inspiring conversations with theologians, ministers, and pastors, then I recommend adding the acclaimed show No Small Endeavor to your podcast queue. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host Lee C. Camp sits down with special guests like the queen of Christian pop, Amy Grant, and pastor and theologian Tish Harrison Warren to ask what it means to live a life worth living. If you're looking for somewhere to start, check out their new episode with Malcolm Gladwell, New York Times bestselling author and host of the wildly popular podcast Revisionist History. They explore how Malcolm became a stellar storyteller, some of the things he may or may not regret, and so much more. It's absolutely worth a listen. Don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor wherever you get your podcasts. So on January 17th, this was last Wednesday night, the Philadelphia Flyers, an NHL hockey team, had Pride Night. 
And one of the things that took place on Pride Night was that in the pregame warm-up skate, players were going to go out and they had Pride jerseys for that moment in particular. And Ivan Provorov, a member of the Flyers, who's also Russian Orthodox, he didn't wear the jersey. He didn't actually come out on the ice. He just chose not to participate. And after the game, he was asked about this. He said, I, I respect everybody and everybody's choices. My choice is to stay true to myself and my religion. That's all I'm going to say. And as could be expected, there was a big backlash, quickly being called homophobic, lots mm -hmm. of tweets that end with do better. Maybe the worst comment came from EJ Reddick, who I believe I'm saying that name right, an NHL commentator who said, Ivan Provorov can get back on a plane any day he wants and go back to a place where he feels more comfortable, take less money and get on with his life if that's problematic for him. If this is that much of a problem, maybe assimilate into his group of teammates and in the community here in this country. Listen, you can feel any way you want, but the beauty is if it bothers you that much, there's a chance to leave. Go back where you feel more comfortable. I understand there's a conflict of sorts going on over there. Maybe get involved. Yeah. So, you know, suggesting that he jump in, go to war with Russia against Ukraine and more or less wishing him dead. What was interesting about this is that in many ways – this is kind of the same old story. We've seen storylines like this many times over the years. At the same time, I was kind of surprised how quickly this vanished. I would say within maybe three days of following this story, nobody's really talking about it now. Everybody seems to have sort of mm -hmm. moved on. And you and I have had conversations about religious liberty and the implications of this stuff. I've run into challenges with ministry and other things because of these questions. I'm wondering, watching this, are we at a different moment, or is there something unique about hockey? I'm curious how you read this in the larger context of events like this in the past. Well, I think this is something that many people are grappling with at the very local level. I mean, I was talking just this past week to a business person in a large corporation who said, I don't know what to do because... With Pride Month coming up in June, is they're already uh, planning the events for that. He said part of it is to make statements about how we value our LGBTQ colleagues and employees. He said, I can do that wholeheartedly. He said that his best friend, colleague, was a lesbian woman that he thinks is excellent at her job and, and would not want her not there. He said, but they're also wanting me to put my picture on the site in a rainbow flag with pride across it. He said, and that I can't do. He said, I can work in a pluralistic environment where I'm saying I'm not going to impose my beliefs on anybody else. I can't, though, say that I affirm this as a positive good. I mean, he's an orth small, low, orthodox Christian. And that really is the issue. It's perfectly appropriate for the NHL to say, look, you don't get to decide who plays on the basis of your religious beliefs. So if you have a problem with this gay or lesbian player somewhere, well, that's your problem, and we're going to stand up for that person. That's reasonable. It's not reasonable to say you have to pretend as though you believe this to be a positive good when it is not in accordance with your deeply held religious beliefs. And that would be the case no matter what it was. You shouldn't ask the Muslim hockey player to participate in Everybody Eat Bacon Month. That's not actually pluralism. That is itself a, a form of uh, intimidation. It's not the way that we're going to be able to go forward as a society. Here's what I wonder. 
because I'm I'm very sympathetic to that view. I'm also if I'm pulling back for a moment and thinking, okay, what are the limiting principles to these ideas about religious liberty, right? Obviously, like I would totally agree with Provorov on these questions. But you had a debate a few years ago about standing or kneeling for the national anthem in the NFL. Right. And the NFL chose to sort of press in and compel a certain kind of speech. There were Mm -hmm. consequences for it. The fans were aggravated. And I think at the end of the day, the request of the NFL was that players who didn't want to stand for the national anthem stay in the locker room for it. Is there something to the fact that, in a sense, these are private enterprises, and the enterprise can say, look, if you don't want to do this, we can punish you, we can pull you out? Because legally, yes, he has the right to free speech, but it's kind of the thing where it's like, I've said this many times, like, you can go around town and say whatever you want about, you know, my great uncles being, you know, drunks and crazy. When you say it in my living room, I'm offended because we're the only ones who get to talk in my living room about how he's drunk and crazy, right? Yeah. So how do you walk that tightrope? What we're talking about here is not legal regulation. Yes, NHL has a very different standing than would NIH. When the government is uh, compelling speech or prohibiting speech, that's an entirely different matter than when a private enterprise does it. That doesn't mean, though, that there's not a question of responsibility here. I mean, the, the NFL has the legal freedom to say Colin Kaepernick is out if he kneels for the national anthem. They have the legal freedom to do that, but that doesn't mean it's a good idea. And it also means that what happens is ultimately, if you get to this point where you say, in order to live with one another across differences, we have to compel people to say things they don't really believe, even just in our private uh, enterprises or, or lives. I mean, ultimately, the fabric sort of falls apart. And I would say the same thing, I mean, in terms of a church This is a very different sort of situation, obviously. But if a church said, okay, if you're going to be a member of our church, you have to say that you believe something that everybody obviously doesn't or that somebody doesn't, that's not a core doctrine of that church. The government doesn't have any business with that, but that doesn't mean it's a good idea. I think that's the case here. It's not so much that it's a legal case. You're not going to probably get much standing in the courts if there were to be a lawsuit here for that reason. But it does have implications and ripple effects for everybody else. Part of the way you could frame the distinction is to say it's not a legal issue, but it is a moral issue, right? It is a moral issue in the sense that if we're going to live in a pluralistic society, if you genuinely value diversity, diversity also means diversity of opinion. Like tolerance means you're going to tolerate things, ideas, mm-hmm. and people that you don't necessarily like. And you know, you don't have to invite people to Thanksgiving dinner. Nobody gets to tell you to do that necessarily. Yeah. But you want to try to live at peace in society. And I feel like the NFL situation was the same sort of thing. I understand the motivations behind the decisions you know, it's not that I don't get why they did it, but I also don't know that it was the moral or ethical thing to do to compel speech. Part of the issue here is how do you how do you persuade one another? So the argument here is not that the rest of the world owes smaller Orthodox Christians, oh, well, your viewpoint is just as good as everybody else's. And that's not what we're arguing here in either direction. That's not what pluralism actually is. It's Mm -hmm. that you have a group of people who are saying to this player, you're wrong. And Mm -hmm. here's why you're wrong. 
And he says to them, here's why I believe what I believe and why I can't do what you're asking me to do. They're trying to use power Mm -hmm. to compel speech. That's a very different thing. Do you think, given the way that the timetable of these events seems to have unfolded, I mean, obviously anything could happen, but does it feel different to you than something like, you know, some of the controversies around the famous cases like bake the cake or don't bake the cake? Or Does this feel different? Does the moment feel different? Particularly given the way the NHL responded and, and essentially said, hey, we respect him. He's allowed to have his opinions and, and we're not going to talk about it even anymore. I don't know. I think we're at a tipping point moment, it seems to me. We may be in a place in which it could go either way. So I could see, especially in terms of business with some DEI requirements and and so forth, a real cracking down to say to people, you have to not only be able to coexist, but you have to affirm. I could see that happening. I mean, part of the reason why this has been so fraught over the past several years is that both sides, quote unquote, uh, feel like they're the losers and they're being bullied and they're being intimidated. And so when you have two groups of people, both of whom see themselves as the underdogs, that intensifies it. And so mm-hmm. it, it depends on whether or not you have people who say, look, it's not a threat to the rest of society if people hold 2,000, 5,000 year old uh, religious beliefs, or it's not a threat to my faith if I'm working around people who disagree with me and who live with me in a different way. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. All right, so let's talk chat GPT. Last November, this thing came on the market. Uh, People were pretty excited about it. You could go to this site, you could ask it questions, you could ask it to write a report. And it was pretty astonishing. Based on this thing called a large language modeling tool, it's the same technology as what happens when you chat with a bot with Amazon or your phone company or something like that, except this is exponentially more advanced. Uh, It's back in the news this week. And the reason it's in the news, Microsoft, which had already invested a billion in the parent company of this, announced they're investing 10 billion more. This comes simultaneously when they announced that they're cutting 10,000 jobs. Google is cutting 12,000 jobs. And between Amazon, Meta, and Twitter, there's been the announcement of another 30,000 jobs. So lots of people are suggesting right now, this is the future for Silicon Valley. This is the future for tech companies, all in on AI, and they're slashing and burning to get us there. I have constantly, to the point where it's probably apparent to listeners, expressed my skepticism and alarm around this stuff. So let me defer to you, Russell. Let's hear your skepticism and alarm (laughs) about ChatGPT and where we are. Well, I I might not have as much uh, alarm as you do, at least not in the short term, but I think what's happening is we've seen ChatGPT go from sort of a cool, fun thing that that everybody's doing, sort of similar to the AI portraits that happened, it was a thing a few months ago, to being a little creeped out by it. 
because, of course, ChatGPT doesn't just sort of bring back information. You can tell it to write something in the style of William Shakespeare or in the style of Ernest Hemingway, and it will do it. So there's some creep doubtness uh, going on for a couple reasons right now. I mean, one of them is that you have an entire sector of American life that really thought themselves to be immune from having jobs taken away from mechanization. So people who deal with words. And so they would say, you know, factories come in and leave and the jobs are left behind. The people are left behind. Well, that won't happen to us. And so that's one of the reasons why you would have this sort of dismissive comment that kind of became a cliche about people who were losing manufacturing jobs will learn to code. Well, (laughs) now you're in a situation where obituaries can be written by artificial intelligence and maybe job performance reviews can be written by artificial intelligence. So that brings about some fear and trembling But then also just the uncanny valley, as they call it, of uh, how close to real this seems. I mean, there was a a rabbi earlier this month who I don't remember if he was in New York or New Jersey, but he had ChatGPT write his sermon, put in the text, put in the tradition, put in the whatever, and got up and just preached it. Didn't tell his congregation until afterward. And he said, I didn't write this sermon. Can you guess who did? And the majority consensus was Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, one of the greatest orators in global Jewish life over the last generation. And he had to say, no, chat GPT did. And there's something about that that people start to say, wait a minute, where, where is this going? Yeah, you know, people talk about sort of the ethics of the singularity and Terminator 2, you know, how close Mm -hmm. are we to that? And it was interesting, the founder of the company was talking last week and, you know, essentially said, this is less like marching towards Terminator 2 and more like the infinite number of monkeys sitting in a room with typewriters, eventually writing William Shakespeare, because the machine isn't thinking. It's collecting patterns and it's all about sort of pattern recognition and emulation in terms of the language. But with that said, like, I think one of the fascinating and ethical questions around this is actually like a misinformation angle, right? For one thing, chat GPT is is often wrong. It doesn't know things. I went on there this morning and asked it some questions and it got some facts wrong about Mm -hmm. some things that I know sort of intimately. But there's also this, you know, the experience of a chat bot. Most of us have experienced this with companies where you're chatting online with customer service. You get the bot first and when the bot can't help you anymore. They defer you to somebody else. Last week, there was a company that does like online therapy. They're called Coco. And the president of the company admitted that ChatGPT auto-generates responses to patients' questions that then a live therapist will tweak and adopt or whatever. But how far away are we from experiences with these chatbots where we don't know the difference between them being real, them being false. There's something deceptive about that that feels dangerous, feels unethical in a similar way to the sermon. It's one more degree to which technology is removing us from ordinary everyday experience. Yeah. And of course, the real enthusiasts behind this kind of techno-utopian idea of the, the singularity, Ray Kurzweil, people along those lines, see everything as pattern recognition. And so probably would say after you said, well, this isn't really Terminator, it's 
pattern recognition, they would probably say Terminator's pattern recognition. And so are you. Mm -hmm. You and I are computers in their view. We're just processing data and we're encased in meat. But it's ultimately the same process, except that this is moving toward being a lot better. And Mm -hmm. it brings about not just those existential questions of what is humanity, but also really practical questions such as, are high school essays over now? Because previously, I mean, it's always been a problem with plagiarism. There are tools that you can use to kind of get around that. I remember when I was dean at uh, Southern Seminary, we found out that a student was plagiarizing a paper because it was on Islam. And every time he referred to Muhammad, he put a peace be upon him afterward. And we're like, okay, something might be a little off here and you could just put it in a computer right. and check it. But that you can't do that when it is generated with chat GPT. And I'm really interested in the way this affects the church when you think about issues of preaching. I mean, we've already had plagiarism issues. How ethical is it for these megachurch pastors to hire outside research firms, sometimes even to write sermons for them? How ethical is that? I mean, there are all kinds of questions that actually are going to affect what happens when artificial intelligence writes praise music. You know, that's, uh, we talked uh, last week about what do you do with hymn writers who turned out to not exactly have the best lives afterward. But what happens if if there's no human hymn writer? It's not a question of whether the hymn writer is in heaven or hell. It's a set of wires. That brings some questions we'll probably be wrestling with for a while. On that note, there's actually a really funny Twitter account. I think it's called WorshipBot3000, and it's a bot (laughs) that is constantly analyzing worship songs and producing its own titles. And it would be great satire if it were, you know, if somebody were doing it on purpose. It's pretty funny. What strikes me about this is there's there's two elements of it. And one of them is something that I don't know that we would have thought about pre-COVID in the same way. But this is one more way in which we're able to sort of disconnect from one another, right? Yeah. If I'm a preacher and I have an AI bot where I can go in and say, I need a sermon on this and here are my application points and it runs it out, I don't really have to experience community. I don't have to think about the engagement person to person that should be shaping my preaching and my sermons. But the second layer of it is it's one more way that we're giving people liberty not to think about things. And training people like, you don't have to think, (laughs) Mm -hmm. we will provide your thinking for you. To me, that's almost more dangerous than kind of the singularity idea. This stuff doesn't need to become sentient to take over life because this could operate society and you could go off into your little AI world where you're not actually interacting with human beings there either. It's all Mm -hmm. bots who live to feed and satisfy your own sense of desire for whatever it may be inside a world like that. Well, and and one step beyond connecting with each other, connecting with Mm -hmm. God. One of the questions that comes up for me When I think about these issues of essays and writing and so forth, and then I start thinking about preaching, is to say the problem isn't with the technology. That's going to bring forward a lot of issues. It really has to do with how we view what it is to listen to or to give Bible teaching, which is not just a collation of materials. You know, I used to teach preaching, and I remember saying to someone one time, you know, this could have been an email. 
because what mm -hmm. you're doing is just sort of, well, John Piper says, John Owen says, John MacArthur <laughs> says, John, you know, whoever. Well, you could just put the links to that and send it out as an email. You're not actually wrestling with the text. And that's part of what preaching and Bible teaching is on both ends, is you have a human encounter with God in the text of Scripture that then is given not as a, here's some information you need, but an ambassadorial. I mean, Paul says, we come to you as ambassadors of reconciliation, speaking as though Christ were pleading through us. So there's a sense of what you're really giving to people and what you're receiving is news. And that's very different than just receiving mm -hmm. information. And so when we get to the point, you think about even some of the technologies that have done great good, and I wouldn't get rid of them. I mean, our Bible apps, searchable features, that's amazing. And yet it does come with a cost where people mm -hmm. don't know how to find their way through the Bible. I mean, this could mm -hmm. kick that up quite a bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing. Like once you could record sermons, plagiarism became a whole lot easier. Yeah. Once you could distribute them online, it became a whole lot easier. It became even easier after that once you could click two buttons and get the transcripts or, you know, some of these Bible and preaching softwares, they were, they were all there. It's just another iteration of better, faster, stronger in terms of the technology itself. Do you anticipate this being the kind of thing where, whether it's legal or sort of the market itself would create guardrails around this stuff and say, no. you know, here's where AI is going to live and here's where it's not? I don't see how you can. Think about, for instance, the mess we're in with social media. At the beginning, people would say, well, this won't really affect us that much because we have FCC. We know how to regulate radio and television and what have you. But Facebook and Google and Twitter and all of these other platforms are a lot bigger than one country. And there are some marginal kinds of regulations that European Union can do in other places. But nobody knows what to do because the technology is so new and so pervasive that by the time decision makers decide, okay, wait, this is trouble, it is already too far gone. It's too much in the mesh of people's lives. Just think about TikTok. Right now, there is almost bipartisan consensus in the United States Congress in a time when there is no bipartisan consensus on anything that TikTok is a threat to national security because of the Chinese Communist Party's relationship to it. How on earth is TikTok going to be banned now when it has become, at least for certain generations of American life, so endemic to it? That's what really makes me concerned when we start thinking about artificial intelligence is I think by the time we start to know here's where we need to regulate, it's already here. We're going to have to have people who know how to tell the difference between reality and technology. That's a harder push. Right now, there are chatbots that are able to have pseudo relationships with people, people mm -hmm. falling in love with their chatbots. I mean, we're kind of at the pong level of this stuff now. <laughs> this right. is not this is not where it's yeah. going to go. So how are we going to equip Christian leaders to talk to people about the difference between your relationships and your chatbot? You know, you can't apply Ephesians 5 to a chatbot. So those are things I think that it's hard for people to think about when it seems like Terminator.
it makes me, as you say that, it makes the old cliche come to mind about like, how does the Secret Service know the difference between you know real money and counterfeit money? They don't mm. study counterfeits. They study the real thing. And yeah. if we're not in contexts with real relationships, real friendships, difficult friendships, you know, friendships that have obstacles, which is what the church often is, then it seems to me the chatbot thing is going to be more compelling, more convincing, because there's nothing to compare it to meaningfully. The other ethic of it that I think is interesting is because these don't think, right, they're only constrained by the ethical boundaries that the programmers put in. Great example of this is that Microsoft actually rolled out an earlier version of some, their version of this, you know, a while back. It was called Tay, and it was available on Twitter. You could tweet at this thing, and it would tweet back to you. And the way the programming is, similar to ChatGPT, is that it would assimilate all the information and the questions that came in and, quote-unquote, become smarter, be able to sort mm -hmm. of understand the world and repeat the patterns better. And crazy people and white supremacists tweeted at this thing very aggressively. And the next thing you knew, Tay was anti-Semitic. And 24 hours later, they had to shut it down. Not Nazi robots. I am now as alarmed as, as you are. So right. <laughs> yes, I will say this. Skeptical. This, this has been an effort on the part of OpenAI, the parent company with ChatGPT, is to at least create some guardrails around that. So for instance... I asked ChatGPT to give me a short bio of you in the voice of a comic book villain. Um, oh, okay. <laughs> so here's the response. It said, I don't think that would be appropriate. Dr. Russell Moore is a respected religious leader and public figure, and it would not be appropriate to write a biography of him in the voice of a cartoon villain. It would not be respectful or professional. Wow. As somebody who has had uh, comments directed toward me by cartoon villains for so long, I, I'm kind right. of pro chat GPT now. <laughs> yeah. I also, I tried the same thing thinking maybe uh, if you all remember Strong Bad, you know, the Strong Bad emails and all that. I tried to do it as what would Strong Bad write in an email to Russell Moore? Same thing. Exact same response. Wouldn't do it. So <laughs> you never know. Chat GPT is my friend. All right. Well, I think that is it for us this week. Thanks for listening. The Bulletin is a production of Christianity Today. Eric Petrick is our executive producer. The show is produced by Matt Stevens and me. Azure Phelps is our associate producer. This episode was edited and mixed by TJ Hester. Our music is by Dan Phelps. Graphic design by Brian Todd. Social media by Kate Lucky. Russell Moore is CT's editor-in-chief. Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip.